This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Some cats and rats and elephants, but sure as you're born, the loveliest of all was the unicorn. All right. We are talking about unicorns. Not what you think, though. Uh, in fact, it's dancing a little jig here in the studio. <laughs> Shh, don't give it away. Cover story of the magazine this week. Unicorns everywhere spreading fear of an end to the bull market. Of course, talking about the unicorns getting ready for their IPOs. Let's bring in senior editor and lead blogger at the Bloomberg Markets Live blog, Michael Regan. He wrote the cover story this week in the magazine. He joins us along with Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. We've had the chance to already talk about about the story. It's really kind of my must read of the week because we're in this market environment. We're trying to figure out where are we in this market cycle, one that has gone on for much longer than we expected. Those unicorns might provide a clue, maybe. <laughs> well, it's it's sort of this buzz that comes over Wall Street whenever there's a big IPO or a big year of IPOs that, oh boy, that you know, someone's whispering into these companies' ears, you know, this is it, the market's about the to top, uh, you know, now's the time to cash in. So there's that element to it. Um, and there's also just the element of supply and demand. When you suddenly supply the market with a lot more stock, Uh, You know, obviously, Economics 101 tells you more supply, lower prices. But what I think is interesting this time is it does coincide with all these other issues we're talking about, the inverted yield curve, this general global uncertainty uh, about the outlook. And it's just another one of those sort of things that you add into the mix, like, oh, boy, it it looks like the top. You know, that said, I, I kind of do not conclude that, yes, this is absolutely the top. My conclusion is that it's almost impossible to call a top. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it is definitely something that I think a lot of, resonates with a lot of people, especially because 2007 and 1999, mm-hmm. the last years before the last really major uh, bear markets, also saw very hyperactive IPO issuance. So, Joel Weber, tell us how a story like this is born in the magazine. <laughs> so... Um, Mike and I have a little bit of a history, and whenever I swing by his desk and just go, hey, could you talk about <laughs> X for me? Um, and then I come back to him like three days later, and I was like, oh, by the way, that was for the cover. And you know, he, he didn't know it's for the cover. I just said, I need hey, a few more paragraphs, this Mike. A good idea. Um, Better so, off not knowing. So but what did you see, you right. know, sort of looking across I'll tell you you know, what your team? So uh, last week, as I was sort of starting to think about this week's cover, um, Matt Levine wrote yet another amazing uh, uh, post on money stuff about the unicorns and the enchanted forest. And this has been something that he's been writing about endlessly for the past few years. And I've always paid attention to how he writes about it. And the enchanted forest obviously being private markets, right? And the bigger shift here is sort of this private versus public discussion that's been going on forever. But I realized actually like we had to do this cover now because with Lyft basically impending as the first of many of these uh, um, in, impending um, IPOs, we had to mark the moment yeah. um, of them yeah. leaving the forest and entering the public markets. And that's why I wrote this little deck for to accompany the cover. I, I thought of this as unicorn season, right? But these special, the special breed of company 
is about to not be that special anymore because they're just going to be publicly traded companies. <laughs> right, right. But it's I, would, a, I would add in, Matt Levine's ahead of us, uh, all of us, on pretty much everything. So it's, that's <laughs> yeah. not an unusual phenomenon. But it's the timing is fantastic because we are in this weird time and we could see the trade uh this week was was unusual in that we're still waiting on brexit we're still waiting on u.s china we're not quite sure exactly how to read the fed stuff we're in the middle of earn between earnings season and i think we're all trying to figure out what are the cues credit market bond market versus stock market what do we follow well and that to me is also why it's happening right like the the urgency that these companies have clearly been acting on to get to market before something bad might happen. And then they they might not be able to right. come out for a while, right? right. So, right. so beat the storm. Uh, if you're if you're going to do anything, beat a storm. I mean, if Levi Strauss can have a strong IPO, bar, and I don't mean that, but it's they're not this super. Wow, that's high a tech. sick burn. I'm sorry, and I do like Levi. <laughs> that's, a unicorn, that's a unicorn of yesteryear. Yeah. It's a unicorn, unicorn of yesteryear. yesteryear. But I mean, it's, unicorn. it's not like some super yeah. high tech app or something. But anyway, they had a good IPO. Well, they they a strong are a San Francisco. Sorry, Levi's. I like Levi's. The OG. Yeah. Yeah. they were the the original San Francisco innovator. Um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's this sort of confluence of events that, you know, I, I think I started off the piece saying, you know, uh-oh, someone knows something that you don't. And yeah. that's kind of the, the, the zeitgeist on the market right now. Oh, what does the Fed know uh, that we don't, that they're raising rates? Yeah, I would argue probably nothing. But, you know, what does the, the bond market know with this yield curve inversion that, that the equity market doesn't know? But the, the fascinating- Tom Keen called and he wants his word back. So guys, okay? I'm just saying we love you, Tom. We really do. Anyway, no, you just have to pay a little royalty. Uh, you know, and it is interesting how much it is on the minds of people yesterday. You and I were corresponding yesterday because Bill Ford from mm-hmm. General Atlantic. I mean, this came up because they're an investor in some of these current and future uh, unicorns, obviously, both on the private side and on the public side. Everybody is really interested to see how this works out because we're going to set a lot of uh, bogeys here. Yeah, and I, I thought Bill Ford made some some pretty interesting comments in that interview. He uh, the one thing he talked about was he kind of compared it to when Facebook went public. You know, sort of finally quenching that thirst for social media, the big social media mm-hmm. uh, in in the public market. And now these companies are sort of quenching that thirst for the quote unquote sharing economy uh, company of of the, this new economy. But here's the thing: these are mature companies, yeah. yeah, right. And we've written about this before. Like what's coming to market right now, compared to Facebook at that moment, these are companies that have had multiple lives already. Like yeah. Facebook was still pretty young when it came, right? Yeah, right. Well, but then again, still unprofitable, you know. Totally. And, that, and you know, to to bring these. You know, what's- but dissimilar from 99 and 2000, where a company was around, it feels like, for a couple of months through .com right. on the end of their name, and they went public. Uh, absolutely. So definitely not that type of frenzy. And that, you know, 99 was like this, debt, de- death by a thousand cuts, because there was <laughs> so many uh, yeah. individual issues coming at you. Whereas here, you know, it's it's a bigger valued, smaller list, but nonetheless, a, a pretty big dollar figure list. It's my it must read, as it I is. said, for the week. So she check said it out. it on the TV show. It's true. On the it's TV. there. She's making history, working for victory, rosy. All right. That's so cool. That is. Taking us, I mean, history. I love it. Taking us back. My grandmother was a rosy sure. riveter. No kidding. Yep. Wow. Isn't that cool? That explains a lot. Does it? Yeah. Okay. You're so tough. I am tough. I'm That's tough. True. Well, tough and, yeah, okay. Toughish. <laughs> All right. Amy Nelson uh, joins us now. She's the founder of The Riveter. She's based in Seattle, joining us on the phone. So, Amy, 
we were just talking, you may have heard us about the fact that like diversity in the workplace, I said it's complicated, Carol said it's not, but clearly people are having a hard time getting to where they need to be. And so much of it comes to leadership and perception. Help us understand what you're doing at The Riveter. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. And I loved that Rosie the Riveter music. Uh, the Riveter is a network of community and workspaces built by women for everyone. So we are building workspaces uh, where we think about women first, which is something that is somewhat unheard of in corporate America. Um, And we're working with women and men who are building businesses, providing resources for that group. And then we're also working with corporate America. I was a litigator for a decade before I started this company um, and really saw a lot of these issues around diversity that we're talking about. And I learned when I became a mother that still today, almost half of women off ramp after they have kids. And to me, I thought that means the system is broken. So how can we um, work on it and and find pathways to a different future? Because I think it's something that would make our country a lot stronger. It would certainly change our GDP if we could figure out how to retain women in the workforce. So at the Riveter, we also work with companies on issues around that. So I'm curious to hear what kind of things you guys have come up with uh, that actually works. Because what's interesting, too, and we did have this Equality Summit at Bloomberg yesterday, and I hosted a lunch with a bunch of CEOs talking about gender in the workplace using technology. And one of the things that came up as somebody said, listen, women, <laughs> they are the ones who actually give birth. So it is a little bit different, right? But what's sad is the perception of men versus women in the workplace. Like, how do we change that? So some of it is what providing maybe different kind of facilities, but there's also the perception side as well. Yeah, I think about this a lot because as a female CEO, I, I look to who are my models of leadership. And the fact is that there are still more Fortune 500 CEOs today named John than there are women CEOs, which is, I think, something that should strike us all as kind of very, very outdated. Um, but I think one of the things that we do at the Riveter is we have kind of very simple conversations that I think aren't happening inside workplaces. I think that everyone wants corporate America to look different, but we don't really have a guidebook to get there. And so within companies, I think it can sometimes be hard to stop and pause and say, what are some simple things that we can do to change the dynamic here and make sure that all voices are being heard? So we have, for example, a four-week series where we work with male executives called Good Guys Series, where we really talk about issues around uh, inclusivity, about what it means to be an ally in the workplace. It can even be as simple as having a conversation about something that I think happens in many workplaces across the country every day, where you'll all, you'll all be in a meeting, a mixed gender meeting, of course, and, you know, a woman is talked over, which is something that happens a lot in meetings. We know that statistically. Um, and a lot of times after that meeting, a, a male colleague will walk up to the woman in the hall and say, hey, I heard Bob talk over you. He shouldn't have done that. And the way we can actually change that behavior is by calling it out in the meeting, not in an aggressive way, because Bob is not a bad guy, but by saying, hey, Bob, that, you know, that was Cindy's idea, Cindy just said that. And I think really just simple steps like that can lead us to a different place. Which is, I think, now what Charlie Pellet was telling, like, <laughs> don't interrupt, right? Well, Let each was, other <laughs> speak. No, no, no. That's what our, it was, yeah. right? Well, it's interesting, too, because this echoes so nicely, Amy, with a conversation I had yesterday with Joanne Lippman, who mm-hmm. wrote a book called That's What She Said. You probably uh, read it mm-hmm. and, and know it. She made that exact point about interrupt the interrupters. I mean, it's a really interesting way of changing behavior because, Amy, as a 
as I think you're you're pointing out, part of this is is really just day to day, minute to minute awareness. And can I just say, we do this at home when we're having conversation in my family, and if somebody, it's like, well, wait, let this person finish speaking. <laughs> it gets a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, and so, uh, help us understand just about uh, forty seconds left, Amy. Sort of where your business goes from here. Clearly, it's catching on, and clearly, this idea of you know how we work is very much front of mind for for everybody, women and men. Yeah, I mean, I think we're headed to a place where we'll have 13 locations across seven states by the end of the year, which are growing faster than even we worked in the early years. And I think the idea of building spaces, thinking about women first, but being inclusive of all is something that's very critical. We come through in the programming that we offer and also just the amenities that we provide. And I do think that as we see women make up the majority of the workforce, which is where we're trending, uh, spaces like this are incredibly important. Amy Nelson is the founder of The Riveter, based in Seattle. She joined us on the phone. Cool stuff. Very, very cool. And, I mean, it is interesting to think about how we work. We spend so much time yeah. uh, here at work, the way we interact with each other. But also, we've seen companies be, the, the good ones at least, be much more thoughtful about space, about accommodating and whatnot. All right. Well, as Carol mentioned at the top of the show, you want to get a story read on the Bloomberg Terminal. Talk about bonuses or talk about job cuts. And we're unfortunately talking about the latter here. J.P. Morgan and Nomura among those. What was that? Who was Nomura. Nomura. <laughs> just checking. You know what? That's not nice. Okay. Oh, come on. <laughs> just having fun with you. All right. Go ahead. Uh, they are m- among those who are pairing their workforces. Want to understand why. So we turn to our expert, Michael Moore, finance team leader, here in New York City for Bloomberg, Mr. Moore. So what's going on? Because different explanations for for each of these banks, right? Yeah, you've had a number of firms recently, uh, you know, that have been cutting jobs, but every story is a little bit different. This is that time of year, you know, bonuses have been paid. A lot of firms do some March calls where they cut some underperformers to make way for the new class of graduates over the summer. Uh, But in other cases, uh, particularly Nomura in this case, it's more about uh, there's been a struggle to achieve some profitability outside of Japan. Um, they've struggled in Europe for a while. Uh, so this is more about you know trimming those costs and, and trying to uh, get to profitability. And for J.P. Morgan? J.P. Morgan falls more into the category of um, we saw them do this uh, last year uh, with the asset management side of the business. This this time around, focus more on the wealth management side, but uh, more kind of a right sizing rather than. Uh, well, and clearly, one of the the big storylines you guys have been following, and, and certainly our colleagues in Europe have been following even more closely, is this potential Deutsche Bank Commerce Bank mm-hmm. tie up. I mean, we're talking right. about tens of thousands of jobs that right. could be eliminated there what's the latest on that deal just since we're we're talking about it? we don't know where it's going to end up but mm-hmm. i feel like we were actually talking about it on the morning show today you know you've got commerce bank saying well we're not so into your investment bank and right. deutsche bank saying well we don't think you're making very good loans it's i mean a good this, relationship right from the start <laughs> this is really going to be a, a tough marriage if it comes through 
Yeah, and we, uh, our colleagues in Europe had a great story out this afternoon about um, the deal perhaps losing some momentum. You have a lot of reasons not to do it. Yeah. You, know, you, um, you have the opposition from the labor groups because you mentioned potentially 30,000 jobs being cut. Uh, you have a potential capital raise that would need to happen because... $10 billion, $10 billion right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that all depends on the price that they get it at, but there are concerns about the you know, the asset books of both banks. And that's why they're in this position to begin with. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, opposition to the deals from a number of cat- uh, categories. So, Michael, there's stuff going on in the industry, right? There's also technology and automation mm-hmm. increasingly taking over some of those right. simple, simpler tasks in the financial industry, although they're even starting to take over some of those more complicated tasks, it seems like. Right. I think, you know, what we tried to hit at with this story is, you know, a lot of these cuts happen every year, but there does seem to be a bit more angst this year. Uh, and I think some of that comes down to it's a tough environment. Uh, everyone's talked about the first quarter being difficult. Uh, and the other one is this kind of long-term creeping fear of automation. Right. Um, is it know, a both. fear or is it a reality? Uh, it's both. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people are scared of, you know, just how many jobs it could replace. Uh, you've seen on the retail side, you know, more customers are moving digital. We've seen the banks cutting branches, you know, on the institutional side, you're starting to get uh, more trading move uh, to electronics. So uh, I think there's that long-term fear of you know, can my job be replaced? It is amazing too. And, you know, I looked at Steve Dixon's story that sort of outlines this and you guys sort of bullet pointed out really nicely and you're sort of going along. You're like, Oh, JP Morgan, Nomura, Deutsche, Goldman. (laughs) And then you're like, Scroll, scroll, scroll. I mean, it <laughs> really does go page. down the other side of the page. Uh, printed out. I mean, we're talking about Standard Charter. We're talking about London Stock Exchange. We're talking about HSBC, BlackRock, Black Rock, State Street, AQR. You know, I mean, this is mm-hmm. all across the board. So, right. as you say, part of this is sort of cyclical in terms of the year. But I do think back to the cover story about you know all these unicorns going public, and that's great, yeah. and everybody's excited, but. Could we be seeing the end of a bull run? And if this bull run ends, Wall Street's going to maybe have at least a mini reckoning, right? Right. Well, and I think it's already happening even during that bull run. uh, You know, front office headcount at the biggest investment banks has gone down every year, uh, you know, at least the last five years. So uh, even during what has been a pretty good market uh, environment, you've had people getting replaced you know, either by technology or because revenues have been lower on the fixed income side. Um, you know, I don't think they need a downturn to have a reckoning in terms of jobs. I got to ask you, though, about Deutsche Bank, because you spent mm-hmm. some time over in London. I mean, what is, you know, we've also had some stories in the magazine, right, that you put Deutsche Bank together with Commerce Bank, and you it's not like weak bank plus weak bank equals strong bank. Right. <laughs> I mean, do they have to do a deal in order to exist? I mean, I just wonder what the future is. Right. I don't think they have to do a deal, but they they seem to need to do something dramatic, you know. And, yeah. um, and I think they got through a lot of the capital questions. You know, some of those capital questions could reemerge if mm-hmm. they do this deal. But uh, they seem to get through uh, the main capital concerns they had in 2011 and then again in 2016. Uh, but now it's just a cost and revenue question. It's simply... Uh, a profitability question of 
you know, if revenues are not growing, can you cut your way to profitability? And so far, that answer has been no. Well, and I think back to Eliza Martinusi's story mm-hmm. last yeah. week. And, and Michael, you are as familiar with this, probably more familiar than most, sort of this this dichotomy between the European banks and the U.S. banks mm-hmm. and how, you know, we're looking around here in the U.S., we're looking at some pretty healthy banks in general, right. you know, notwithstanding some of this little culling that we're talking about in this segment. But generally speaking, you talk to Jamie Dimon, you talk to Brian Moynihan, oh, yeah. you talk to, you know, good, right? Gorman, like, they're feeling pretty good. Yeah, I think the term golden age was thrown around last year. <laughs> you know, like, uh, we had record banking profits right. last year. Um, J.P. Morgan had the highest profit of any bank ever last year. Yeah, so uh, you're seeing very different um very different environments and you know, stable and, leadership in right. a lot of the u.s banks yep. which is certainly not the case uh with right. a lot of the europeans i mean we just had the it was at the swedbank ceo have mm-hmm. to step aside yep. uh, this morning we're talking about money laundering over there so i mean what a tale well, of that was two the markets story, right yeah. basically why can't the european right. banks get it right it's also a fragmented market right so that even if deutsche bank and commerce bank get together there's still kind of a small percentage of the overall market kind of different from over here where the big banks really dominate yeah, and I think you, there's two elements of it. One is the bank, the U.S. banks took their medicine early. They yeah. raised capital. They got some of the fines out of the way. The fines have dragged on for the Europeans. The capital raising has dragged on. And then the other piece of it is the market environment. You know, the big banks here have um, a lot of concentration in terms of on the wholesale businesses. There it's a little more fragmented. Uh, and the economy has not been as healthy right. in Europe. Well, and look, we didn't even get to talk about uh, Brexit and what the implications are, even for how all the workers and all the money may start to move around. Michael Moore, what a rock star. Always great to have you here in studio with us. He leads all of our finance coverage here in the United States. So the U.S. and China are certainly looking for a better way forward when it comes to trade. Now, we've talked about this specifically before, about the warnings of an economic iron curtain falling between the United States and China. If there is a tech cold war between the two countries, it's one that will likely have no winners. So writes our Andy Brown. He is editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy Forum. He joins us back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York City. So good to have you here with us. I think as we watch, Andy, the negotiations going back and forth, Uh, everybody's focusing on things like soybeans or cars or specific things. You say that's not what we should be focusing on. Completely focused on on the wrong thing. I mean, I think a lot of people are are missing the whole point here. Looking at the trade war and looking at these tariff schedules when what is really important is not the iron curtain, it's the silicon curtain. It's this technology cold war that's coming up behind the, the, the trade war, and in particular, this list of high-technology goods that the U.S. government has drawn up with a view to banning their export to China. And so what sorts of electronics are we talking about here, and how does it play into products that we know and love and probably use a lot? So these, these are products that are high-tech products that are potentially dual use, right? So they've got this long list, and now they have to decide, you know, what are they going to ban? And the critical point is, is, you know, what question are they going to ask? If the question they're asking is, how do we stop the People's Liberation Army? Okay, you're going to end up with a rather short list of absolutely critical technologies that under no circumstance can you allow to get into the hands of the Chinese military and security services, okay, for legitimate 
very right. legitimate national security. And that makes sense. Right? That makes a lot of sense, right? Nobody, nobody's disputing that. If the question you're asking is, how do we stop the Chinese economy? Okay, then you're going to end up with a very, very long list, including technologies that go into cars produced in Detroit, for instance. Well, and what's interesting, too, is you say, you know, China's going to move forward, even if there are limitations. So then they will be tapping technology from Europe, from elsewhere, correct? Because on something like self-driving cars, they essentially might be setting the standards going forward because they can. Totally. I mean, so the... the, the uh the mistake behind, or the assumption behind that, that only the United States has got this technology is completely false. I mean, if the, if the U.S. won't supply this technology, much of it they can get from Europe, from Israel, from Japan, from Korea, from other places. And the point is this. It's China that is actually setting the pace mm-hmm. on new energy vehicles, right? So, you know, they're roaring towards this future. They got, by 2020, they're going to have a, a annual production of, you know, about 2 million electric vehicles. And these are really high tech and contains so much of the technology that is now on this list. You're talking about artificial intelligence, neural networks, you're talking about positioning, navigation systems, you're talking about advanced radar. So if the U.S. wants to play in this China market, which by the way is bigger than the U.S. market, uh, plus Japan, plus Germany, plus the rest of Europe combined, okay? You have to be all in. Well, and I got to tell you, I love numbers. And when you say that by 2020, this market would be about uh, 2 million cars, electric vehicles in China, that is 20 times the size of the United States. So if you want a little perspective and get an idea of who's going to be leading the way, it's a really clear picture there. And what about the manufacturing piece? Because one of the things you point out in this story is this idea of the iPhone as it exists today doesn't exist without Chinese manufacturing, right? Well, exactly. So you imagine what would have happened to Apple if the Apple iPhone had contained technology that was banned from export to China. It wouldn't have been able to have assembled these things in China for a global market. We would be paying 5000 bucks a piece for, a, for an Apple iPhone, right? So it would be completely unaffordable. And let's face it, the, the next generation car is going to be a high-tech gadget connected right. to the internet, basically a smartphone on wheels, right? Right. So what's our way forward the the real question now is the degree to which china is regarded in the u.s as a potential security this is a big national security issue right so you know the trust has come out of the relationship things are really falling apart you know if 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 the issue is you know are we trying to block china as a security threat you know all the red lights are flashing And so are you optimistic, pessimistic, neutral that some deal gets done that President Trump can declare victory, but CEOs across, especially the United States, don't say, holy schmoles, as Carol Master would say, this (laughs) dramatically makes my business harder? Yeah, well, look, I, I'm pretty optimistic that the trade war is going to find some kind of a resolution. I think we're, we're heading in that direction. I'm actually quite pessimistic that this tech cold war can be resol- res- resolved anytime soon. I think this silicon curtain is going to be a very yeah. much a permanent part of the U.S.-China relationship dividing the two countries. Just got about 30 seconds left. And it's important China should worry, too, because right, this has been a very important bilateral relationship. So it's not just the U.S. getting it right. 
China's got to get it right, too. China absolutely has to get this right. I mean, there are a lot of technologies that China needs. There's mm-hmm. a lot of collaboration. They need Silicon Valley. They need the innovation that's coming out of, of Silicon Valley. That's been really the key driver of innovation globally over the last 10 years. Andy Brown, thank you, as always. Andy Brown is our editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy Forum in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Abhay Deshpande, founder and chief investment officer of Centerstone Investors. He joins us again. He's on the phone here in New York City. Abhay, great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me, as always. All right. So what's happening in this market? I feel like we're still trying to get our arms around a semi-volatile kind of couple weeks. What's really driving the trade at this point? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the market. I mean, forgive me for geeking out for a minute. But Please like, geek away. I'm going to geek away. Uh, there are so many multiple states of the world that are being sort of assumed at the same time in the stock market, especially, well, in the markets, generally speaking. It's a global recession. It's a reflation because of Chinese tax cuts. It's you know, everything all at the same time is being sort of considered and uh, priced in. And it seems like that volatility has just been driven by the, you know, the odds shifting slightly one way or the other, um, like, you know, towards one camp or the other. Um, and the reality is that really there, there has just been no evidence to suggest that there's a massive imminent, you know, 2008-2009 style global recession right around the corner, much less one in just in the United States. Um, but there's at the same time, um, there's not any evidence that this reflation kind of trade that's been, if you look at metals prices and whatnot, there's sort of this uh, implication that we're going back to 2016 Chinese reflation um, kind of, um, you know, moment, and there's no evidence that that's actually occurring either, other than the fact that the Chinese have started to, to uh, have provide some uh, fiscal, uh, uh, you know, implement some fiscal policies. So I do wonder, Abe, uh, and you bring some good points. I mean, I just think we're at a very interesting potentially inflection point in the markets. We're just trying to figure out where we go from here. Uh, We've spent so much time uh, talking about the inversion of the yield curve, right? We're about a week in since it all started and kind of caught our attention. And we've seen, you know, a tremendous uh, bond market, global bond market rally and yields really backing off. Uh, How do you read it? Is it potentially a warning sign? Uh, I I read it that um, in December... Um, like a bunch of institutions sort of said, oh, no, there's an inversion coming, and so let's get ahead of that. And they sold stock and bought, bought and, you know, kind of reallocated, basically, and that's been kind of what's been going on here. And, uh, you know, now everyone else is catching up to the other side of that. Oh, no, there's, um, you know, ex- reflation, so maybe we need to buy stocks. And so at the same time, there's a, still that crowd that says, no, the longer-term inversion uh, – in the longer term, the inversion is the real story, so let's buy bonds. And that just kind of goes back to my first point. There are so many different states of the world that are being kind of debated right now and priced in, and that's really a source of volatility for the stock market, well, for markets generally speaking. Um, but, you know, uh, what we, we've been um, saying for probably 
nine years since <laughs> since the end of the financial crisis is that we're in a, just a different state of the world where we're just going to muddle through. Um, there's going to be growth scares. There's going to be you know all kinds of you know potentially inflation scares. Although at this moment it looks like the inflation genie is back in the bottle. Um, you know there are going to be all kinds of things that are reminiscent to what it was like from 2010 until uh, the you know so called 2016 when Trump was elected. So I think it just we're just getting back to that muddle through environment that existed for years after the financial crisis, which reflects the fact that there's a huge amount of leverage in the system. Interest rates can't really go up that high, otherwise it would, because it's, a, it's it almost a self-corrective mechanism. If interest rates go high, with the amount of leverage that's in the system, you will cause a recession. So there's a, a buffer or a, or a limiter in terms of how much higher interest rates can go and also how much lower they can go, because that's the, you know, the Federal Reserve and the other central banks will step in. Um, so I think we're just back to this muddle through environment. The stock market, the bond market, hey, like they have a very difficult time with the gray area. You know, they can they 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 just want to know. Oh, are we going into? Is it another reflation or is it another global recession? Well, yeah. If it's in between, it's really difficult for them to to figure it out. And so let's talk some names. How do you invest into a market like this, given everything uh, that you've just laid out? And I love that list that you gave uh, at the top of the conversation. But putting some money to work, where do you go? Yeah, Centerstone is ultimately Centerstone is is, an, is a bottom up investor. And sometimes when you have these uh, moments where there's uh, sort of, uh, you know, extreme kind of uh, pessimism or optimism, however you want to look at it. Uh, regarding bonds or stocks, I mean, the uh, extremities reveal that sometimes the market becomes very monolithic in certain industries. And so when you're concerned about recessions, the entire industrial sector gets hit, the entire housing sector gets hit. And in this case, also last year, the entire um, semiconductor industry got hit. When we look at cyclical industries like that that get hit, what we try to do is find the toll booths within those industries. That is, it companies that are independent from the cycle, things that can clip the coupon from just the ongoing production needs of an industry. So in the semiconductor industry, we found a company called Versum, which is a, recent, a relatively recent spinoff, and they provide the especially chemicals that allow uh, semiconductors, manufacturers to actually produce the semiconductors. So we don't, hmm. you know, it's like a toll booth. We don't really require more fabs to be built. Now, that stock went down 30%, just like uh, all the other semiconductors were going down, um, but finally, someone figured out, oh, there's some value here. The market is mispricing things. This is a toll booth business. And a company like Integ- called Integris came in and made a stock bid. And then Merck KGA, which is a German competitor, which is in a similar line of business, but much larger, made a competing bid of almost 30% higher. So we're in this, in this kind of bidding war <laughs> right. to, to, to you know, get a business like that. And I have other examples if we have time, but that's kind of what we're looking at in these, in, in these cyclical business, the right. toll booth. Which explains the stock being up 80% because people are bidding over it. Yeah, you do have, we love talking names. So Mohawk Industries is another one that you, that's definitely on your radar. You're investing in it, suggesting others do likewise? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, you know, just on stated PE multiples, and we, we look at much more than PE multiples. Mm-hmm. We also look at the quality of the management and the defensiveness, the, you know, the defensiveness, I guess, of the franchise. You know, what we're trying to avoid is like that Amazon risk that, you know, can just completely muddy the picture and, and destroy the earnings power of the business. But Mohawks, you know, they make, um, if for those of you not, that are not familiar, they're, they're essentially one of the, I mean, they are the largest huge. floor covering yeah. in the United States in certain categories. They're almost, they're a duopolis or close to a monopolist. And they're also vertically integrated. They make everything. Uh, they even have, um, you know, 
they, they source their own materials from their own mines and whatnot, and they create the product that makes them the lowest cost producer of most floor coverings. And now that stock gets beaten down every time housing stocks go down. Right. There's a there's a problem in housing markets, and right now the ho- the problem in the housing market is that um, obviously interest rates have gone up. More Lack of supply, up. though. Uh, what do you mean? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Lack of supply of housing. Oh no, there's plenty of demand. So people focus on the new home starts, um, and really right. the ninety five percent of the you know, the market is existing homes. And existing yeah. homes are down a little bit, yeah. but not enough to justify a stock price decline of over 50%. Right. It's a good franchise. It's a good management team. Got it. A uh, good balance sheet. You know, kind of qualifies as that toll booth type uh, business. Hey, Abe, we've got to run. Great to, though, talk names with you and get uh, the overview. Abe Despande, he's founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors on the phone in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.